Chapters seven and eight of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter seven. An old salt. Among the pirates, Captain Grandier. Roland Bayard among the pirates? exclaimed Mr. Force, while Mrs. Force closed her lips with a sudden motion and grew a shade paler. Rosemary began to tremble, and the other girls to look anxious. Come aft. Let us find seats somewhere where we will not be spied or overhauled, and I will tell you all about it, said the old skipper, moving down toward the stern, where the deck was almost deserted by the other passengers, who were all gathered forward, leaning over the bulwarks, and taking a last look at the receding shores of England. They found seats on the wooden benches, and sat down. The old skipper took off his cap, and wiped his large red face and close-cropped gray head, and then said, "'I didn't expect to see you here,' I should as soon have thought of seeing Oldfield Farmhouse standing up before me, right in my path, as a group of old neighbors, with my little niece in the midst of them. Heavens and earth, how a civil war shakes people up! I dare say, now, you all left on account of the war. No, said Mr. Force, we left before the war to visit my brother-in-law here, and to give our young people some advantage in foreign travel. My own ill health has detained us abroad for more than two years. We return now, on account of the war." "'Good Lord! Abel Force, you are not thinking of going into the army, in your crippled condition?' "'No, not exactly, but we can all be useful in the hospitals, even my wife and daughters, in caring for the sick and wounded soldiers, and for the widows and orphans of the dead, so far as our strength and means will go.' "'Ah, that is something else. When did you hear from the folks at home? I have not heard from them for years.' "'I got a letter a week ago from your niece, Miss Grandier.' Your nephew, William Elk, is in Richmond, on General Lee's staff. Your nephew, Thomas Grandier, is in New Orleans, with General Butler. And your grandnephew, Edward Grandier, is with Farragut in Mobile Bay. Sam has elected to stay at home, follow the plow, and take care of the woman. Sam has the only solid head in the family, except my own. Look at that now. Brothers and kinsmen shooting each other down, running each other through the body, blowing each other up as if they were at war with a foreign enemy. Oh, Lord, Lord, groaned the old skipper, flinging down his cap with force upon the deck and furiously wiping his perspiring face. It is grievous enough, but it is human nature, and we cannot change it. The strangest part of it all is that the men composing the rank and file of each army have no personal ill will toward their antagonists. Each fights from a sense of duty. Each invoke the blessing of God upon their arms. There was a time, Grandier, in our lives, when peace reigned so long that we all began to believe that war belonged only to history, and barbaric history at that, and had passed away forever, as one of the last relics of barbarism. It was the Mexican War that woke us up from our dream of the millennium, and since that there has been in one part of the civilized world or another almost incessant and most ruinous war. So when we call ourselves a Christian, civilized, and enlightened people— "'We tell a lot of bragging lies. Out with it, Papa, in plain English,' put in Wynnette, who had held her tongue until it ached. "'Who is this girl?' inquired the old skipper. "'My second daughter, Wynnette. Surely I introduced her to you,' said the squire. "'So you did. But there are so many of them, you know. I used to dandle this one on my knee when she was a baby, but she has grown out of my knowledge,' said the old skipper. Then, turning to Wynnette, he grasped her hand and said, "'Right you are, my dear.' We are a lot of braggarts and ignoramuses. So far from being Christians, civilized and enlightened, 
We do not even know what these terms imply. We are heathens, barbarians, and we live in the twilight. Right you are, my dear, as to your opinions, but wrong in your way of putting them. Interrupting your father. Discipline should be maintained, my dear. Remember that, said the old skipper, not unkindly. Before the astonished Wynnette could reply, Rosemary put in her piteous little plaint and said, Oh, Uncle Gideon, dear Uncle Gideon, tell us about— about, she meant to say Roland Bayard, but she reddened and substituted, the pirates. Of course, that is what I brought you here for. You have heard about the pirate Silver and his ship, the Argent? I have seen notices of depredations made by the Argent. It is a privateer in the Confederate service, is it not? inquired Mr. Force. Privateer, yes and worse. It is a pirate. In the Confederate service, no, no further than running the blockade, to carry in merchandise to sell at ruinous prices, would go. The Argent is a privateer, a blockade-runner, a slaver, and a pirate. Just as, a few years ago, we thought war had passed away from the face of the earth forever. So we thought that piracy had been swept from the sea. But we were mistaken in both cases. Our civil war, the blockading of our southern ports, the emancipation and consequent stampede of the Negroes, have brought into action a fleet of sea-robbers who call themselves privateers, and pretend to be in the service of this or that faction, but who are really pirates and slavers. They are armed to the teeth, and are manned by the most reckless desperados gathered from all nations, mostly jailbirds, convicts, criminals. They take our merchant ships, they steal slaves from the West Indies, run the blockade, and sell them in our southern ports, or, with equal impartiality, when opportunity is given, they decoy slaves from the southern plantations by the promise of a free passage to the north, and they carry them to the West Indies where they sell them to the planters. The most notorious of these brigands of the sea is the Argent. I have never yet heard of any of them being taken. The old sailor, having talked himself out of breath, stopped, wiped his forehead, and flung his rolled handkerchief with force upon the deck. "'But Uncle Gideon, dear Uncle Gideon, tell us about—about the pirates,' pleaded Rosemary, pale with sorrow. "'My pet, I have told you about the pirates,' grunted the skipper. "'But—but—about—about about the loss of the kitty,' pleaded Rosemary. The old skipper snatched up his cap from the deck and flung it down again with violence. Then he said, "'Yes, devil fly away with them. They took the kitty. I can't talk about it, girl. The devil takes possession of me every time I think of it. They took the kitty. That is all that is in it. Maybe some time or other, when the devil forsakes me, I will tell you all about it, but not now.' "'Not now.' "'Tell us something, at least, of Roland Bayard,' said Wynnette. "'I did tell you. He is among the pirates.' "'But in what capacity? Is he a prisoner or a volunteer?' persisted the girl. "'Oh, oh, Wynnette! Roland Bayard could never be a volunteer among the pirates. He would suffer himself to be killed first. Yes, to be tortured to death first. Yes, yes, to be slowly tortured to death first. Oh, Roland, Roland!' wailed Rosemary too deeply distressed for her childhood's friend, to conceal her emotions. Captain Grandier, touched by the trouble on the quaint little face, pulled himself together, patted her head, and said, "'Don't cry, little girl. Roland is not a volunteer in the pirate crew. I never believed that for one minute, though Silver, the head devil, told me so. No, my child, he is a prisoner among the pirates. I am sure of that.' "'Oh, that is some comfort.' I would rather they should keep him a prisoner, or even kill him, than make him wicked. Indeed I would, Uncle Gideon. But how comes he to be among the pirates, and you here? He a captive, and you free. 
"'Tell me that, Uncle Gideon,' said the little creature, with a shade of reproach in her troubled tones. And while Rosemary waited in suspense for the answer, there was another who listened anxiously to catch its every word. This was Elfrida Force. CHAPTER Eight: THE LOSS OF THE KITTY I will tell you, my girl, though I hate to talk of it. About a month ago I sailed from Havana, bound to London, with a cargo of rum, tobacco, and sweetmeats. The weather was fine, and we had a good voyage until we came within four or five days' sail of port. A sail had been following us all day long. We did not know she was following us, nor could we make out by our best glass what she was. She was the only sail in sight. As night closed in she gained on us, that was certain, but still we could not make her out. She did not come near enough for that, for the kitty is a pretty fast clipper herself. As night darkened, we lost sight of the strange sail without any misgivings. But in the gray of the morning, she was alongside of us. "'Hold on, the devil is getting into me again,' exclaimed the old sea-dog, snatching Mr. Force's hat from his head, and flinging it with vehemence upon the deck. "'The fortunes of war, Captain, the fortunes of war. Be patient,' said Abel Force. "'The fortunes of murder, robbery, arson, piracy. There was no fight.' THE WILL OF PROVIDENCE, THEN. THE WILL OF THE DEVIL. YOU SHAN'T LAY THEIR MURDERS AND ROBBERIES AND ARSONS AND PIRACIES UPON PROVIDENCE. THAT WOULD BE BLASPHEMY. THERE WAS NO STRUGGLE. WHAT COULD OUR UNARMED LITTLE BALTIMORE CLIPPER DO? THOUGH EVERY ONE WAS A HERO. AGAINST A PIRATE SHIP OF TWENTY-FOUR GUNS, MANNED BY THE DESPERATE OFF-SCOURINGS OF THE GALLEYS AND THE CONVICT PRISONS. ALL ARMED TO THE TEETH, BRISTLING WITH PISTOLS, DAGGERS, AND CUTLASSES. NOTHING AT ALL. They boarded us, walked into us, and threw us, and made prisoners of our men, took possession of our ship, then put the men into two open boats and sent them adrift to sink or swim, and carried off me and young Roland captives to their own deck, and finally sent off an officer and a detail of their devilish pirates to work the kitty, and Satan only knows where they carried her and her valuable cargo of rum and tobacco. We parted company then and there. I never saw young Roland after that. I believe he did make some resistance, and was wounded. I saw him bleeding and carried below, and I never saw him again. Here the captain made an involuntary dash at the earl's cap, but his hand was intercepted by Mr. Force. "'He'll scalp us next,' said Wynnette. "'Umph, umph, umph,' grunted the captain. "'Oh, Uncle Gideon, oh, Uncle Gideon,' moaned Rosemary, while Mrs. Force gripped her own hands firmly in silent trouble." "'Don't cry, honey. I believe he is safe enough, and will turn up all right. I called them murderers, and no doubt at all. Some of that criminal crew were murderers, and worse than murderers, if such could be. But they did no murder in my sight. They might, had they chosen. They might have massacred all hands aboard the kitty, but they didn't. They put the men in open boats and set them afloat to take their chance. And then, for some reason well known to himself, but quite unknown to me, Captain Silver took young Bayard and myself on board the Argent. I said I never saw Roland after he was taken down below, nor did I, but I did not fail to inquire for him. The head devil told me that the young man was all right, that his wound was only skin-deep, that his men never killed or wounded men, whom they could so easily overpower and capture without bloodshed, and especially in the case of a fine young seaman who might become useful to them. "'Oh, Uncle Gideon! Then they did only take Roland on board to make a pirate of him.' "'Of course they did, my dear, for when I asked to see Roland, Silver told me, with a satanic laugh, that the young man was in retreat, preparatory to entering his novitiate in the holy orders of bold buccaneers, roaring sea-rovers, 
and that no outsiders should have access to him, for fear they might shake his good resolutions, and even win him back to the selfish world. "'What a devil!' exclaimed Wynnette. "'Every day I inquired about Roland, and each day I received answers which would have made me believe that the boy was gradually being persuaded to become a pirate, if I had not known that Roland Bayard could never become so perverted. "'No, never, never, never,' firmly declared Rosemary. "'But while Bayard was kept a close prisoner, I had the run of the deck,' continued the captain. "'One day I asked Silver where he was bound.' He told me, with infernal insolence, that he should touch on the coast of England, put me on shore, and then go about his own business. Two days after, we came to anchor on a lonely part of the coast of Cornwall. It was a dark night, and they put me in a boat and took me ashore and left me there, with just two sovereigns in my pocket-book. They had robbed me of thousands, but they left me that much to take me to London. I don't know why, I am sure, that it should sometimes occur to a scoundrel to stop short of the extreme wickedness he might perpetrate. But, at all events, Silver did stop short of the crime of leaving me penniless to perish at night on a desolate sea-coast. I passed the night in a solitary fisherman's cottage. In the morning there was not a sight of the Argent to be seen. She had sailed again. I walked to the nearest railway station, distant twelve miles, and there I took the parliamentary to London, for I had to economize my small funds. I went down to the West India docks, where I was as well known as the church clock, and saw some of my correspondents— told my story, got all the money I wanted, and took the express to Liverpool, reached there yesterday, engaged a berth, and here I am. "'Was your ship and cargo insured?' inquired Mr. Force. "'From keel to masthead,' answered the skipper, "'but that was against fire and water and accidents. Now, I don't know whether being taken by a pirate would be considered as coming under the clause of accidents or not. But anyway, you know the insurance companies are bound to make a fuss before they pay a cent.' they always do. Your losses, then, I fear, may be heavy. Yes, but not ruinous, even if the insurance companies do not pay, because I still have the bluebird that George sails. Where is Captain George now? inquired Mr. Force. In the China Seas somewhere, if he has not been taken by a privateer. But where is your nephew, Leonidas? inquired Captain Grandier. We do not know. We have not heard from Lee for many months." When we last heard, it was through a letter from him, dated on board the United States ship Eagle, then about to sail under sealed orders. We are all, therefore, naturally very anxious, replied Mr. Force. Ay, ay, these are anxious times for us all. But at any rate, the man of war is safe from the pirates, who prey only on unarmed merchantmen. Hope the sealed orders were to go after the privateers, that is, pirates. The conversation was interrupted by the sound of the dinner gong, and passengers began to troop down from the deck to the dining saloon. Seasickness had not yet come on to take away their appetites. The earl, who had been a silent though interested listener to the story of the old skipper, and who had his own private opinion of young Roland Bayard's position in the pirate ship, arose and drew the arm of Rosemary within his own to take her down to dinner. Old Captain Grandier offered his to Mrs. Force. Mr. Force took his eldest daughter— and Wynnette made a manly bow, and took Elva under her protection. And so they went down to their first dinner on the Asia, and their last for several days, for a more stormy passage than that of the Asia, which sailed on that March morning, was never weathered by ocean steamer. After dinner the old skipper went on deck to smoke his pipe alone. The forces went down into the ladies' cabin to look at their staterooms, arrange their effects, and get comfortably settled in their quarters before seasickness should overtake and disable them. 
Our party occupied three staterooms in a row, on the right-hand side of the cabin, as you entered it from the forward gangway. Nearest the gangway was the stateroom of Mr. and Mrs. Force, next to that the one of Odalite and Elva, and last of the three was that of Rosemary and Wynnette. All the three rooms were exactly alike, and each had a door opening into the cabin, and opposite the door a little window looking out on the sea and sky. On the left hand, as you entered, there was a wide berth at the bottom, and a narrow one at the top. On the right hand was the wide sofa. Under the lower berth, and under the sofa, were deep drawers to hold the sea wardrobe, and other effects of the passengers. In the angle between the side of the window and the end of the sofa was a stationary washstand, with all needful accessories. In the angle between the other end of the sofa and the door leading into the cabin was a stationary lamp, locked up in a heavy plate-glass box, and carefully lighted and locked up every night, and unlocked and extinguished every morning, by the stateroom steward. The little door of this glass box or closet was in the general cabin, so that the lamp could be attended without intrusion into the stateroom. For the rest, all the fittings of the staterooms were cabinet-finished. The floor was covered with a thick crimson Brussels carpet, the berths and the windows curtained by crimson satin damask, and the sofa covered with crimson moreen. Under the stationary lamp was a corner bracket of black walnut, with three shelves to hold books or anything else that could be contained on the limited space. Below the forces' quarters was a long row of staterooms, exactly like their own, and on the opposite side of the cabin a corresponding row, all occupied by ladies and families who were total strangers to the forces, and perhaps in many cases to each other also. The ladies' cabin was fitted up very much as most well-appointed steamer cabins are, with handsome carpet, sofas, easy chairs, mirrors, water coolers, and so forth. Down the middle stood a long oval table, at which you could sit and read, or write, or sew, or talk with companions. This table was lighted at night by three large chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. The forces were well pleased with their quarters, and as for the girls, they were always running in and out of each other's rooms, comparing and admiring. Only Mrs. Force was anxious about the comfort of her invalid brother. His stateroom was in the gentleman's cabin. She would hear when they should meet at tea, whether he were well accommodated. They had scarcely completed their arrangements when the gong sounded to call the passengers to tea. They went up to the saloon, where they were joined by the Earl and the old skipper. Their party of eight just filled one table, which they thenceforth kept for themselves. The old skipper was installed at the head of the table, and the squire at the foot. Mrs. Force and the Earl sat on the right and left of the skipper. This arrangement of the four adults was maintained for the whole of the voyage, but the four young people sat as they pleased. This table had two waiters, and they were well attended. In answer to Mrs. Force's questions, the Earl gave her a good account of his stateroom, adding it was near that of the captain. After this the whole party went up on deck for a promenade. The setting sun was striking a broad path of glorious light across from the western horizon to the bows of the ship. "'It seems the course of our voyage,' said Odalite. "'We are sailing toward the setting sun, and just now in its path of flame.' There were many more people on the forward deck, but after the sun had dropped below the horizon, the wind gradually freshened, and it grew very cold. Then Mr. Force proposed that they should leave the deck. They all went down to the saloon, and gathered around one of the vacant tables, where the captain entertained them with sea-yarns, and even sang a sea-song. There were many other groups of passengers gathered at the other tables, but they were still strangers to our party, when the old skipper began to sing his song with its roaring refrain of, "'Oh, what a row! What a rumpus and a rioting! They all endure, you may be sure!' who go to sea. 
Conversation stopped at all tables, and all the people turned to listen. Presently several joined in the chorus and made the saloon ring again with melody. At the close of the song the singer was loudly applauded, but he excused himself from repeating the experiment. At ten o'clock supper was served for those who wished it, but as our party were not among that number, they left the saloon and retired to their berths, where they were all soon rocked to sleep by the motion of the ship, and so ended their first day out. End of chapter 8